time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. music that should be used on a standalone star wars film just because it's so kick-ass my opinion Mm, shout out to joffrey orta antonio our maestro uh he is the man so um last week last time episode 31 we're halfway through day two they've talked about dismemberment of germany uh, wanting to have a three-way, four-way, five-way, seven-way. Seven 107, Oof. according to FDR. Seven ways gets complicated. Like, is that my hand on your dick, or is that your <laughs> hand on my dick? Is that you your dick really on my hand? Who's, yeah. what is going on? Yeah, and I'd have to have lights uh, lights on. Don't turn the lights off. I got to see what I'm doing. No, no, the other way around. I'm saying, you don't want to see what's going on <laughs> in that, man. Like, just take it. Which is what you said if to some... me in Vegas. Anyway, yeah. so, uh, yeah, just so. Don't think, the first... don't, what? don't think too hard. This is what's going on in the seven way, man. Just accept it. Take it. Take it take all. It, take it. You want it? Take it. Well, so the, uh, the first part of the meeting is over. And like you said last time, dismemberment. Um, they agreed, kind of, yes, not now, let's not make an, an, an announcement about it. Stalin's not happy. Churchill is, is still nervous because he doesn't really trust or know what Stalin's going to do next. FDR is just sitting there, worrying, you know, missing the days when he was a little boy, riding the bicycle through Germany. So again, but Stalin is not going to let this go. And he doesn't have to because when it comes to what's on the field, what's on the field of battle, you know, he's the big boy. He can pretty much drive this conversation. He could end this war if he wanted to by invading Berlin. So he is not going to let this go. He is operating from a position of power. Power, military power. Mm. <clears throat> so, uh, part two of day two, they finally get around to talking about Rose. Uh, what Roosevelt wanted them to talk about at the get-go is France's role in Germany, and they're going to talk about reparations, something else that is very close to Stalin's heart. Yeah. Now, Winnie, as I mentioned in the last episode, is very determined to make sure France comes out of World War II as a major power. Right. For several reasons. Uh, as, as I've mentioned before, there was this long-standing British policy of preventing any single European power from being powerful enough to dominate the others. Mm-hmm. This was and it's one worked of well main- for them. Yes, it has. And this is one of the main reasons for opposing Napoleon a century earlier, because he wanted to unify Europe under a single economic uh, treaty, uh, European Union-ish, 
and the British didn't like that idea at all. So they ba- almost bankrupted themselves mm-hmm. in order to stop him from doing that. Um, <clears throat> of course, that's not how the British explained it to <laughs> their people. Uh, he was an ogre. He was a he was a demon. He was an usurper. He had to be stopped. He was disrupting the very core fabric of Europe. He was a warmonger. <clears throat> of course, people who have listened to the Napoleon show that I did with my old alcoholic friend uh, <laughs> recovered it had nothing alcohol. to. No, no, that's mm, actually not true. I was trying to be nice. Mm, that's not true. No, no. What's the what's the opposite to recovered? <laughs> uh, Relapsed. Getting worse. <laughs> Um, is, uh, you know, that, that you will know if you've listened to that show that <clears throat> the vast majority, 99% of the wars and battles that the French got into under Napoleon were defensive and uh, the British were the, the cause of those wars. Every time Napoleon would sign a treaty with Austria or Prussia or Russia, uh, the British would come along afterwards to those other parties and go, hey, hey. Hey, 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 hey! Psst, psst, psst. Come here, come here, come here! Why don't you, uh, why don't you start another war with Napoleon? Look, here's some money, here's some cash. Yeah, yeah. Start a war, start a war. It's good. We got your back. It's got. A, you can take him. He can. He's short. He, <laughs> she's short. You can take him. You can do it. You go. We, we got your back. Uh, <clears throat> so it's all about economics. Was then is during uh, the end of World War Two and is a uh, hundred years uh, or no, we're well, not quite. Whatever it fucking is, seventy years later, mm-hmm. um, in 2017. So, um, also, by the way, so uh, this whole idea of keeping them divided and fighting each other, I believe, is the main reason the US has supported Israel over the last 60 years. Mm. Helps keep the Middle East in turmoil, stops them from unifying and becoming even more of a major economic power. Barry Morris, I know you're thinking about sending me a message on Facebook about that. (laughs) Uh, I don't care. Keep it to yourself. Uh, you and I are never going to agree on this. I'm not even going to bother replying to your Facebook messages because it just turns into a endless, endless rant. Um, don't agree with me if you don't want, but that's my view on why the US supports Israel. Um, and we will get into Israel later on in the series in depth, and then you have permission to waste my time fucking debating me. Um, come on the show. We can do it live on the show. There you go. Um, it's also why the U.S. supports wars between the Sunni and Shia divisions of Islam and have done for decades to, to kill keep each other. The, yep. keep the Arab countries from unifying. And that will be a large part of the subject of our new series, which I don't have a name for yet, <clears throat> on contemporary politics that I mentioned last time. Because we're going to be talking about Syria and a lot of what's going on in Syria is the result of Sunni Shia divide, but also economics and um, also an extension of the Cold War. Anywho, so what Winnie wanted was for France to use their army to keep Germany in line, but also to keep an eye on the Soviets. Um, they they wanted France to be their proxy. They feel that if they support France's interests. In the post-war world, France will be in their debt and will basically be their proxy in the new, in the United Nations Security Council, which we're going to talk about in detail over the next couple of episodes. But also, and I'm, I, I wasn't aware of this, Ray, do you know about the Franco-British Union? 
Yeah, I actually I did a little bit of that on the World War Two. So I did. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure that everybody knew. So picture it's it's getting late in the afternoon, February fifth. They're stalling around the table. On one side of him is Molotov, and on the other side of him is Ivan Mainsky, who is the, his go-to guy when it comes to reparations. So Stalin is getting ready to go to reparations, but before he can do that, FDR, like you said, wants to bring up the French French participation. Reparations is going to have to wait. But yeah, during uh, right before the French fall to the German onslaught, um, 1940, uh, De Gaulle and Churchill had this brilliant idea. I'm not sure who originated, but they were both certainly on board with it. Churchill is the brand new prime minister. As you said, he was not elected. He was made prime minister. Um, and there, the idea was we are going to form this Franco-British Union. So even though German forces crush the French army, take over the land that we know as France, the entity of France, the government, its spirit, its whatever you want to call it, now that it is joined with uh, Britain, will not have to technically surrender, and the fight can go on, because the French still have forces in North Africa, and they had their own empire in different parts of the world that they could keep fighting, so they wanted to do that, but it wasn't going to, it wasn't meant to be. Um, what's his name? Pétain was being brought back to take over, to head Vichy, to surrender to the Germans. But it was their idea to show that they, they both agreed that they were never, ever, ever, ever going to give up to Nazi Germany. The two countries would now be one and they would keep on fighting until victory was achieved. Both of them, and you, you can say a lot about Churchill, you can say a lot about de Gaulle, and, and Cam, you do say a lot about Churchill, but they were warriors, they, they, were, um, they were fighters, and they wanted to keep it going. So this was their, to me, unrealistic idea of keeping France technically in the fight, even though their country would have been overrun by the Germans. And it was a serious thing. Like, they yeah, nearly yeah. Uni unified their two nations, Um it had a lot of support with the French government, but not enough votes uh, to get through. As you say, it fell apart and the Vichy government was created instead. Um, but anyway, so Britain's been trying to get a leg over on France for a long time. And um, they're hoping that by supporting them in their moment of need now, coming out of World War Two, to keep them uh, as a strong economic power, <clears throat> they will, France will end up in their debt. Um, now, you mentioned de Gaulle, and uh, I think we need to take some time out now and do a mini-biography on de Gaulle because he, he's obviously an important player, uh, not only uh, in the next few episodes, but, you know, for the rest of the series, I mean, for, for the next decade anyway, right. <clears throat> de Gaulle is a major, major player in um, sort of the United Nations and also in, in the Cold War. Um, so, Charles Andre Joseph Marie de Gaulle, Chuck to his friends, Chucky, <laughs> Chucky, Chucky D, Chucky D. He used to call him. Um, yeah, so Stalin, as we'll see, doesn't like Chucky e. D. Uh, neither do Churchill and uh, Roosevelt. No, nobody, quite nobody. frankly. His own wife didn't like him. His kids didn't like him. Uh, even his fan club didn't like him. No one really liked Chucky e. D. That's not true. The, the French resistance adored him, as we'll see, but no one outside of no one outside of the French resistance 
had much time for him. And uh, he was a pain in everybody's ass inside France and outside of France and had been for a long time. So um, uh, uh, I thought we, we'd tell a bit of his story. Born in 1890, so he's 55 at the end of World War II. Mm-hmm. Raised in a devoutly Catholic and traditional family, his mother was descended from a family of wealthy entrepreneurs who had lost most of their land during the French Revolution, which, mm. of course, they had opposed. So they were part of the uh, royalist camp during the Revolution. His father was a professor of history and literature at a Jesuit college, and so Chucky grew up reading French history from a very early age, also reading philosophy from an early age. So he mm-hmm. sounds like he was a, a very bright kid, deep thinker from, from the get-go. And his mother used to tell him often about how she cried as a child when she learned that the French had capitulated during the Franco-Prussian War in 1870. So he decided at an early age he was going to revenge that loss, and that helps us understand why he was dead set against capitulation in uh, World War Two. Because, issues. well, he grew up with his mother talking about how it broke her heart when they capitulated against the Germans uh, in 1870. So he, he didn't want to do that to his mummy. Aww. So nice. he studied at a military academy where he got the nickname the Great Asparagus Stork <laughs> because he was 6'4 or 6'5, depending on the source that you read, 196 centimetres, 6'4 um, something. Let's just say 6'5, okay. um, which is... To unusually tall for a Frenchman. Um, not unusually tall for my sons, my elder right. two boys. They're 6'4". But uh, for a Frenchman, uh, he was very tall, very lean. And then he gets... In 1912, he was commissioned in the French army and uh, goes into the First World War. Hmm. <clears throat> Do you want to say anything about uh, him in the First World War? Uh, no, I don't have anything on the First World War. I have stuff after that in World War II, but not the First World War. But I'm sure he practically won it by himself. Oh, man. Fucking great stories. So <clears throat> in the First World War, he, he was wounded several times and uh, ended up becoming pretty bitter about what he considered to be the outmoded tactics of the French army. Mm-hmm. Um, in late 1914, though, he was put in charge of a company which uh, gained sort of notoriety for repeatedly crawling out into no man's land to listen to the conversations of the Germans in their trenches. Damn. And then they would crawl back and pass that information on. And the information that they brought back was so valuable that in January 1915, he received a citation for bravery. Can you imagine crawling over to the other guy's trenches, Ray. No. To, listening and then turning around and crawling back. The fucking stones you would have to have. <laughs> Which were dragging on the ground that. as he crawled. Man, they would carry their balls about in a wheelbarrow, these guys. They were so fucking big. That, fuck. I honestly... If I, would, I was sitting yeah. in a trench and, and somebody said, hey, uh, 
uh, can be busy. Uh, no, not really. I've been sitting in a trench for six months, you know, just picking the scabs off my sores, uh, you know, trying to cook this rat that I was thinking of eating later on. Uh, why? Um, well, you see that trench over there? Uh, you mean the one with the Germans, are? Huh? Yeah, 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 <laughs> that, that one. one. Like, there's not many fucking other trenches. I mean, there's this trench, there's that trench. Yeah, the one with the Germans, yes. Uh, what we want you to do is crawl over there. Right. Have a listen. Have a listen. Then crawl back. Tell us what they have to say. <laughs> Question. I guess yeah. he understood enough German to gather or took someone with him who spoke German? No. No, they would They would like, they'd go, do you understand? Do any of you speak French? Parlez-vous Francais? Because <laughs> they had fucking balls on them. They... <laughs> yeah, I guess some of them must have spoken They, they would French. whisper into the trench. German. I'm sorry. Could you say that again, <laughs> that again? in French? Could you write it down? <laughs> well, they, they just crawled back. Boilerplate. They, they crawled back. The commander said, well, what do they say? They said, well, I'm not sure, but it sounded like, I think <laughs> you're just rambling shit. That doesn't, that's not well, even that's words. It's just noises. Oh, well, you didn't ask me. <laughs> You should have asked me if I spoke German before you sent me over. I went over I there for nothing. <laughs> yeah, I had, they had... Drag, I had to drag these brass balls all the way over there in the <laughs> mud. Hard that was. Now I got to go polish them. Now I've got to shine them. Now I've got to polish them up again. Anyway. I need to be excused for next day's combat. I have to polish my balls, sir. <laughs> he, so uh, he got a citation for bravery. At the Battle of Verdun... In March of 1916, <clears throat> he was leading a charge to try and break out of a position. They were surrounded by the enemy. He received a bayonet wound to the thigh. Mm. Um, first of all, the bayonet hit him in the balls, but just bounced, <laughs> bounced off because they were... The, there was something brass. softer. The thigh. And he went, ha-ha! And then they got him in the thigh. He's like, oh, shit. <laughs> he, usually when they tried to stab him in the thigh, he just... Wiggle his hips and his balls would swing <laughs> left and right. He would Phil. block the bayonet thrusts with his brass balls. Just, oh, oh. put his hands behind his head. Just, oh. but you know, this time they were too fast. French back, Got him in the thigh. <laughs> then he was stunned by a shell. Oh, God. Then passed out from the effects of poison gas and uh, was captured. Mm taken prisoner of war, one of very few survivors of his battalion that he was in charge of. They, they all got killed. So uh, he uh, spends 32 months in a prisoner of war camp where Damn. he is treated quite well, despite the fact that he constantly tries to escape. Uh, and I'll tell you a story about that in a second because it's a fucking amazing story. All right. um, while in prison, he acquires another nickname, the Constable. Mm. Um, this came about apparently because he would read German newspapers. He learned German at school and spent a summer vacation in Germany. There you go. I got it in my notes later on. Okay. Yes. So he did speak German. Good. Good. Um, uh, and he would so read German newspapers and, and sort of give talks to the rest of the prisoners, giving them um, his view of the, the, the progress of the war, what was happening. And um, he was so patriotic and so confident in the 
the the coming victory of the Allies that they called him the Constable, which was the title given to the Commander in Chief of the French Army during the monarchy. <laughs> it sounds no, like French... Caesar. Sounds like Caesar when he was captured by the pirates. We're going to get out of here. Don't worry about it, guys. Yeah. Buck up. It's just a matter of time. The good guys always win. Yeah, except he wasn't saying that to other prisoners. No. <laughs> Caesar was saying that to the actual pirates. Ah, I'm going to come back and kill you all. Ha <laughs> <clears throat> So apparently the French military like nicknames mentioning height. Napoleon was the little corporal early mm. in his career. This guy was both the great asparagus stork and uh, the constable. Now, also while he was a prisoner of war, uh, he got to know Mikhail Tukhachevsky quite well. Tukhachevsky was the future commander of the Red Army. They were both POWs during wow. World War One. Unfortunately for everybody, by World War Two, Tukhachevsky was dead, shot for treason during Stalin's purges yeah. in 1938. So de Gaulle didn't even have that on his side. Now... While he was a prisoner, he wrote his first book. Of course. That's what I would do if I was in prison. I've always said, uh, inevitably, I will end up in prison. <laughs> yeah, um, I will use it to write books and uh, study the Sicilian um, and get good at, at relaxing my ass muscles, I guess. I, <laughs> oh, you'll get some help with that. Yeah. 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 Oh, I need to take a drink. Yeah. He wrote his first book called uh, The Enemy's House Divided, where he analysed the uh, German army, the divisions within the German army. Wow. Um, then he made five unsuccessful escape attempts while he was in there. And um, I only found detail on the first one, but this is a great story. So he apparently found out that the prison hospital was connected to the main hospital in the town where the prison was. Mm-hmm. And he had developed blisters on his feet from the for sitting around in this dank, nasty, dirty cell. And his right. mother had been sending him care packages, which contained an ointment to put on the, the blisters. It was like trench foot, apparently, right. the blisters on his feet. <clears throat> but instead of putting the ointment on his feet, he ate it. What? Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> Now, it could have killed him, but it, it instead it just made him very, very, very sick. And he developed a condition that resembled jaundice. His skin went yellow, his eyes sunk into his head. Oh my God. Uh, and meanwhile, another prisoner, Captain Ducray, managed to blackmail a German officer into getting him a German uniform to wear. Now, how in the hell? How <laughs> do you blackmail your your captor? Yeah. Now, I'm guessing that he'd let this German officer give him a couple of hand jobs. That's what I would. And, do. I mean, yeah. And you know, said, "Or right, I'm going to tell everyone." <laughs> what else? How else do you manage to blackmail a German officer? I that's that's the only thing I could think of, and I would I would that would be my go to. Uh, go well, to I remember position. that's how Hogan used to do it in Hogan's Heroes. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, who would yeah, want to jerk him off? But anyway. A blowjob yeah. out the back and then threaten to tell everyone <laughs> if you didn't get him a radio. Um, 
<clears throat> anyway, he manages to get a German uniform. So then Decray dresses up as a German officer and makes it look like he's taking De Gaulle to the prison hospital. But when they get there, they walk straight through to the main hospital and then straight out the front door oh God. and then head for the Swiss border 300 kilometers away. Now, unfortunately, they've got to walk. And unfortunately, De Gaulle's been eating fucking ointment meant for his feet. And his feet hurt. So, and his... <laughs> <laughs> so not the best plan, honestly. Not through. Think it through, gentlemen. I mean, balls. I mean, he could have just maybe sat on his balls and rode them all the way to the Swiss border. <laughs> uh, decoupled well, save, save, his balls. Save some of the ointment for your feet and then eat the rest. <laughs> And they were recaptured nine days later when they were still about 100 kilometres from the border. So they got Aww. 200 kilometres in nine days, which For isn't nothing. a bad feat when you've got blisters on your feet and you've been eating fucking ointment and you have a pair of brass balls you have to drag around <laughs> everywhere. Damn. And then he was he was put into, like, solitary confinement and, and uh, they took newspapers and tobacco away from him. Then they'd let him out and he'd escape again and again and again and again. He's uh, he's classic man. That's the difference between World War One and World War Two. World War One, they like you crazy guy, and they would throw him back in the jail. World War Two, they would have shot his ass the second or maybe the first time. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, apparently during his whole time in prison, too, he wrote letters to his parents. Now, if you were a prisoner of war, Ray, yeah. uh, and you were writing letters to your parents back home, what do you think those letters would say? Well, just in case I don't make it, um, Mom, Dad, I love you very much. Thank you for everything you've done to me. Uh, done for me. Um, I'm going to be trying to escape again. If you never hear from me again, that's because I died. And then I wouldn't write them anymore. No, I don't know. I but I would just be like, I miss you guys. I wish I could be fighting for France, but uh, I'm here. So hugs and kisses, Chuck. Chucky D. Well, you Chuck got D. part of it right. Uh, he wrote constantly about how ashamed he was that the war was going on without him. Mm. All, all about him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, he stayed in prison until the end of the war. And um, after the war, he stayed in the army, was sent to Poland to train their infantry during their war with the communists in 1919. Then he returned to France, taught at their top military school for a while, gets promoted to commandant or major, worked as a staff officer for Patain, uh, who was his original commander as well. They were close friends and worked together. But in 1934, he writes his second book, Toward a Professional Army. And this is a very important book. He argues in it that France needs a professional army based on mobile armoured divisions, basically tanks. <laughs> he says, you know what? We need to mechanise the infantry. We need to develop divisions of hundreds and hundreds of tanks. We need to develop the concept of a lightning war. I don't know. What's a name we could call it? Um, I know Blitzkrieg sounds good. I speak German, rolls off the tongue. Yeah, he, do, he doesn't actually use the term Blitzkrieg, but he does talk about lightning, you know, the concept of a fast, furious attack using tank divisions. Problem is, he publishes the book in 1934. France sells only 700 copies. Mm. In Germany sells 7,000 copies. 
Hitler reads this book. He's Chancellor. He really goes, oh, my friends, this is a very great book. We shall all read everyone. Hey, he's have you seen this thing, yeah. this Chucky D, right? Oh, fucking brilliant ideas. Wrackenbruchen. Reading the booking. It's a fucking great. Like everyone, hey, hey, start building tanks. I love this idea. Oh, my God. <laughs> so the guy who's devoting his life to uh, revenging their defeat by the Germans <laughs> writes the blueprint for Blitzkrieg and gives it to the Germans. Oh, history is better than any uh, any show that you could make up. Yeah, so, so his idea is so good. Uh, but again, a lot of people were saying that um, the mentality at the time in France and other places was that the tank was nothing more than uh, support uh, to be in a support role for the for the infantry or maybe for cavalry for an attack, that kind of stuff. Whereas obviously the Germans, uh, de Gaulle and others were turning it on its head and saying, no, the tank should be the spear tip. And then everything else should come after that. So, again, a very good idea. A lot of different countries are coming up with it. But, you know, Germany got there first and was able to uh, to take advantage of it. French are like, ha, 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 ha. what is this stupid thing you talk about with the tanks? Yeah, the tanks is just a big uh, the, the, the water truck. We don't know anything to do. We are the French. We are lovers, not the fighters. Well, the other thing is, um, what's, the, what's the point of having a beautiful uniform, a French uniform with all your medals and everything else, if you're inside no a freaking tank, no one can see it. Exactly. It was the glamour exactly. of the cavalry, the officer corps, that really fought against it because... I, it wasn't about the elan. It wasn't about the courage of the man. It all came down to the machine, and that is extremely unromantic and unFrench. But at the outbreak of World War Two, De Gaulle's still only a colonel because he's a pain in the ass to yes. the leaders of the military. He's bitching and moaning. Reminds me of me at Microsoft, uh, <laughs> just going, "This is stupid. There's a better way. Why aren't we doing it this way?" <laughs> And no one wants to hear that. So, um, he, you know, basically he's, he's not really rising up the ranks very quickly. Um, he commands a tank regiment, though, in the 5th uh, French Army um, and got to implement the theories and tactics that he'd developed. But, unfortunately, he's up against an army who not only understands his tactics, but are employing them themselves because they read his book. Yeah, they got to ship a lot more tanks than they do. It was it was pretty incredible because the, the Germans are coming. They break through the Ardennes. I mean, just the entire French front is collapsing. May 17th, 1940, he's in charge of 200 tanks. He's able to counterattack using the methods that he had helped come up with. Unfortunately, he does not have air support, so it's not going to last very long. But just imagine a huge tidal wave of German armor, and there's one guy sticking out his hand and blocking a little bit of the water. So he had his moment in the sun, but he couldn't get air support, and everything around him was falling apart, so it didn't matter, but he was able to prove his theory about amassing armor, and it worked worked brilliantly for a couple hours. And the best thing about it was whenever he, um, you know, came up against a German tank, the uh, lid would pop open and, and the German would stick it. He goes, it is you. It's Chucky D. Look, I've got your book. Can you sign Can the you book for me? me? Please. Oh, look, everybody. It. It's Chucky D. He wrote the book that's helping us win the war. Oh, hey. Thank you. Thank you. And he'd be Mwah. like, oh, okay. <laughs> but then we fight. Oh, I sign, I sign I, now, I but was... then we fight. 
<laughs> yeah, <laughs> of course I would sign your book. But then you're still my enemy. What's the name? Oui? Gustav? <laughs> to Gustav. Hugs and kisses. Thanks for recognizing my genius. Chucky D. Chucky D. So yeah, it's one of the uh, it's one of the few victories the French actually have in the war when he attacks this um, unit of German tanks. But of course, it makes no difference. But he's a national hero Woo! because uh, everyone else got their asses handed to them. Uh, <laughs> he actually has a minor victory in June 1940. He's made Under Secretary of State for National Defence and War, which put him in charge of coordination with the British. Yes. So. In a way, he's a little bit like Napoleon, the guy that no one would listen to mm-hmm. until he's finally given a command and proves that he knows what he's talking about. And too late. But uh, he's only a junior minister in the French government, and when the subject of surrender comes up, capitulation, although he is against it, uh, and in fact suggests that the government should remove itself to Algeria, which was a part of France at the time. Mm-hmm. Of course, that's a whole other fucking subject, French, French colonialism. Uh, he said, let's go to Africa and, and fight the war as best as we can from there. Maybe we join the British and the Franco-British Union. Uh, no one listened again. Right. So um, instead... I'm sorry, I apologize. I was just going to say that he turned his nose away from the idea of surrendering. And if you've seen a picture of him, that some knows that he was turning away from that idea. Thanks for that gag. Sure. Um, so uh, he refuses to accept the armistice with the Nazis, calls on the French population to resist the occupation, continue to fight. And then he and some other officers get the fuck out of Dodge and they fly to Britain on the 17th of June. 1940, with 100,000 gold francs. Nice. And he leads a government in exile and sets up the Free French Forces, or the F-cubed, or just the f f f as they used to... We are the f f f We are the f f f f Bonjour, we are the f f f Do you know about his escape? It was pretty ballsy, I have to say. So, so he's no. um, he's with General Spears, who's a British officer who was in charge of Dunkirk. Obviously, that didn't work out. De Gaulle actually tried to help the forces uh, at Dunkirk, and so he's saying he's saying goodbye to General Spears at the airport. I think it's the Bordeaux airport. And stop me if you if you have um, if you already know this or if you have more detail. So he says, "I'm going to just take the general to the airport. I'm going to see him off because he knows there's a very good chance he is going to be put under arrest by Vichy. That that's coming." probably going to be turned over to the Germans. So for that day on June 17th, he keeps his regular schedule. He has his um, luggage sent to where he's going next. He keeps all of his meetings. He goes to the airport. He salutes General Spears. He he shakes his hand. And by this time, the plane has started. General Spears climbs into the plane. uh, Churchill, huh? De Gaulle turns around as the plane starts to move and then then turns around again, jumps into the plane, which is not easy considering he's 6'5", and this is a little tiny plane, jumps and they were quick and they take off and the people who were there kind of minding him kind of watching him are just you know slack jaw their mouths are open and the plane just takes off and he's able to thumb their nose at him and he goes and he joins uh, Churchill who tries to help him as much as he possibly can but it was a daring escape on his part 
Wow. He, he loved a good daring escape. He did. Even when I'm he's su- escaping his, his own people. <laughs> I'm surprised he was able to get his balls in the plane, but he managed it along with the gold. But yeah, he was able to uh, pretend like he was just walking away from the plane, turn around because it was already moving, jumped in, took off. Pretty amazing stuff. Um, after the armistice is signed by Premier Pétain, by the way, as I mentioned, de Gaulle's old friend, his original commander, mm-hmm. uh, Pétain okay. moves the government to Vichy, uh, has the National Assembly, Assembly vote to dissolve itself, gives him dictatorial powers, mm. which uh, is the beginning of his uh, Révolution Nationale, uh, which was intended to reorient the French society. Because according to Petain, they should never have got involved in the war against Germany in the first place. Had their, their failure had nothing to do with the lack of competence of the French military. No. It was all due to the decline of French society. It was the f- problem of the French people, not the French military. Uh, could it be the um, the superior tactics and weapons of Germany, or did that play a, uh, no, a role in nothing it at all? To- Nothing to do with the fact that they hadn't listened to De Gaulle and had book. their asses kicked by fucking, you know, fucking panzer tanks. It was just that the, the French were uh, The moral decay corrupt. of the French people. Moral decay, that's right. Yes. So that's that's the way Pétain is framing it. Obviously, uh, probably guided largely by the Nazis who believed in moral decay. They were probably saying, look, you've got too many Jews in France. That's your problem. That's not helping. Um, meanwhile, de Gaulle is uh, back in London, uh, cutting records, uh, big hits, uh, big star, and he's broadcasting from London, radio broadcast, back to the French, uh, giving these big speeches about resisting the occupation, intercut with uh, tunes. Um, I have another. I have another one here that it was a big hit for him at the time. Another big hit. I mean, people couldn't get enough of it. Quite frankly, people were just astounded. It arrived. Like, how come? How come we never knew you could do this? Out of nowhere, you're creating just fucking hit after hit after hit. They loved him. He was a hero. Renaissance um, man. Now he's urging the French to disobey their government to rise up. Now today. We have a name for people like that. We call them a terrorist. <laughs> well, it's all about, it's all context. It's all relative, I think. Maybe. De Gaulle was a terrorist, urging mm-hmm. people to rise a, up yeah. against their government. He was a tall terrorist. And uh, on the 2nd of August, 1940, for his efforts, he was court-martialed by the Vichy government and condemned to death for treason in absentia. Yes. They did say in their ruling, though, listen, don't get us wrong. We love the songs. Yes, songs, you're... great. If you just keep producing the songs and cut out the uh, violent terrorist rhetoric. <laughs> Take uh, off the other form. We're all good. You can, yeah. you can, you can, you can keep doing it. We don't Walk have a problem with the songs. Fucking, we love the songs. Um, but uh, so for the next five years, there's this battle for the hearts and the minds of the French people between these two old comrades. Now, the French Premier Pétain was 84 years old 
at this stage. Mm-hmm. Also a national hero from World War One. Also had a nickname. Do you know what his nickname was, Ray? Ooh, ooh, uh, the mustache. No, I, I don't know. The Lion of Verdun. Oh, that's right. Oh. The Lion versus the Great Asparagus Stork. <laughs> There's a WWE fight I want to see. In the left corner. Weighing Where? 73 pounds when wet. Where the the Lion of Verdun, 84 years old. And in the right corner, with his nose halfway in the middle of the ring. <laughs> The great asparagus dork. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think I broke another rib. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. Uh, yeah. So yeah, so the BBC, uh, uh, Churchill, throwing money at it, trying to help him uh, get more troops, get to bring on more French soldiers to join the Free French. That kind of thing. Uh, but again, a lot of people are going to have a lot of trouble with this. There's going to be times when f- certain French units are surrounded by allies and they're going to have the choice of either going back to France or, or going to or, you know to captivity or to join the Free French. A lot of times they don't join the Free French until the very end. So even though we joke about it now, he had... You know, he had broken all the rules. He had, you know, quote unquote, betrayed the current government, Vichy. So for for a lot of people, it was not cut and dry. They were really confused about what to do. But he kept on him. And and like we're, we're going to point out time and time again, this was a very stubborn, very headstrong man who never, ever, ever stopped. And all he cared about, besides his own ego, was the was the sovereignty of France. Yes. The soul um, of France. <clears throat> mm. So, um, as I said before, Pétain blamed the French people, the decline of society. De Gaulle blamed the military, obviously. Duh. Um, De Gaulle, in fact, spoke of the entire era since 1914 as Le Guerre des Trente Ans, the Thirty Years' War. Mm. arguing that the two world wars are really just one war with a small truce in between. And he's probably right. Yeah. By early 1942, the the uh was uh, rapidly gaining in power and influence. They overcame the Vichy forces in Syria and Lebanon and added to their base. But they had to deal with the French communists uh, during this time, which was delicate because Moscow was still in an alliance with uh, Germany up until the the Barbarossa. But after Barbarossa, uh, they were able to get friendlier with the French communists and friendly with Russia. Mm -hmm. So then uh, Chucky D becomes sort of... Friendly and wants to reach out, but Big Joey not 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 really interested. Again, already at this stage, he's like French, fucking useless. Don't want anything to do with you. Um, even after Chucky became the head of the provisional government of the French Republic in June 1944, um, Stalin really doesn't want much to do with him. By the way, Pétain, after the war, was tried and convicted for treason. Yeah. Originally sentenced to death, but it gets commuted to life in prison and he dies in prison in 1951, aged fucking 90-something. 
He was 84 in uh, 1940, so 51, add 11 years. He's fucking 95. He dies in prison, 95. Fuck, that's rough, man. Jeez, yeah. That's that's a rough rough way to go out. From the Lion of Verdun, national hero, to dying in prison in your mid-90s. Yeah, that's, that's fucked up. Yes, but Stalin's going to get a uh, personal, he's going to get a face-to-face uh, with de Gaulle in uh, December of 44, where he's going to, to, to be able to get a firsthand experience of what it's like trying to talk or do anything with the, uh, with the, uh, the French, uh, the French general. Yeah. So <clears throat> Chucky goes to Moscow to sign a Franco Soviet treaty, but from the get go gets on Joe's bad side because he refuses to recognize the Soviet backed government in Poland. Mm-hmm. Uh, remember, going way back, he had helped the Polish fight the Soviets back yeah. in 1921. They gave him a medal or something for, for his assistance back then. An yeah, award. it wasn't the Soviets then. To be, technically, it was still the, the Russians, the Bolsheviks. But yeah, yeah, he got an award for it. And um, so, you know, he and Poland go way back. He, so he refuses to recognize that. And of course, Joey, not very happy. They have dinner that night, a big dinner. <laughs> Big Joey pr- proposes toast to Frankie and Winnie, yeah. but not to Chucky D. Ignores yeah. Chucky D. His guest of honour just ignores him <laughs> uh, in the toast. Of course, very, very insulting. Yeah. Uh, they then go and watch a movie, as as they do. Apparently, during the watching of the movie, you know, Joey would put on his favourite flicks, um, John Wayne Westerns. Um, and every, every, you know, it was something, I don't know what the movie was, but it, it had something to do with the war. And every time a German soldier died, Joey would reach over and grab de Gaulle by the thigh and squeeze him hard. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> That's too and, kinky and, for me. I know, right? And apparently it bruised the fuck out of Chucky's thigh. Probably his injured just, thigh from the war. Yes, and you know, and and his balls. Obviously, he had to push them out of the way because they were the size of bowling balls and brass. He was sitting on them, uh, which isn't comfortable. You know, if you do that for a it long is. time, it really is. It is comfortable. No, it is uncomfortable. Oh, okay. I think um, so. Anyway, so then De Gaulle leaves, and he's like, "Fuck this shit," and he goes back to his apartment. Then he gets summoned back to the Kremlin mm-hmm. in the wee hours of the morning. Goes back. Joe's half drunk, and <laughs> it's a party. Uh, and uh, and and says, "Look, uh, hey, Frenchman, <laughs> I have I have rewritten the treaty in the sign." Actually, he had a very high pitched voice, didn't he, Stalin? Mm-hmm. Hey, hey, hey! <laughs> sign, sign here. Making me choke. And uh, they uh, they get into it and they abuse each other a bit more. And anyway, Stalin gets Stalin's got out to dinner, got drunk, gone to a movie, got drunk, goes back to his office in the Kremlin and rewrites the treaty, half smashed, and then wakes De Gaulle up, brings him in, and has him sign the treaty. I mean, just fucking great stories. So it's personal. Um, It's personal. But, well, yeah, yeah, but I have to say that at the end of that, de Gaulle was so happy that they managed to sign a treaty that... um, He wrote another song. He he wrote another song. Yes! He did. Nailed it.
wrote Indian so, but stars. High pitch of Stalin. Yes. The girl's part is played this So, yeah, uh, again, another big hit. That was on the charts for about 12 weeks, I think, nice. um, during 1945. Uh, nice. And it brought back Stalin's musical career as well, and there'll be more songs from Stalin later on. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah. yeah, but, 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 Ray, not just Stalin that doesn't like De Gaulle. No, no one likes De Gaulle, as no, I but... said earlier. Oh, God. Um, Winnie once uh, warned Eden his foreign secretary, saying about de Gaulle, remember, remember, there is not a scrap of generosity about this man. Which is true, I think. He was, he was by all accounts, rude and obnoxious to deal with, a bit like me. He was um, <clears throat> well, yes. He was a tall asshole. In, in his dealings with the British and the Americans, and he referred to them, by the way, as the Anglo-Saxons, uh, <laughs> He always insisted on retaining the full freedom of action on behalf of France, it, regardless of what they wanted the French to do. He goes, no, no, I don't give a fuck what you want. We're going to do our own thing. Now, from their perspective, they had liberated France with their own blood, yeah, sweat and tears. Exactly. And he has zero gratitude. Well, uh, the the, uh, the French, the free, the French, uh, free French, were able to help liberate France after D Day. But the important part of that sentence is after D Day. I mean, yeah, you, you, we, we, we broke the Germans, we smashed the Atlantic Wall, we come into the country, you come in behind us or whatever, or you raise your head after we started fighting. So we appreciate what you did, you free French, but you're you're certainly not the main force here. But but again. All de Gaulle could see was France. All he could see was the, the honor of the French, and he was not ever going to deter from that. And so he pissed off everybody because he did not go out of his way to try to appease anybody. It was not within his makeup to do so. Chucky D explained it this way. Never did the Anglo-Saxons really treat us as real allies. They never consulted us government to government on any of their provisions. For political purpose or by convenience, they sought to use the French forces for their own goals, as if these forces belonged to them, alleging that they had provided weapons to them. I considered that I had to play the French game, since the others were playing theirs. I deliberately adopted a stiffened and hardened attitude. Asshole attitude. Right. Well, look, as far as he's concerned, the Americans let him down at the World War One, let him down in World War Two. So, yeah, it was he, he was pretty pissed in his mind. He had uh, specific reasons to be very upset at the British and the Americans. And he had a suspicion that the British in particular were going to try and seize control of France's colonial possessions in the Middle East. Mm. And he was probably yeah, right. I could see that. Um, little did he know that the Americans were going to steal them, but that's another story. Um, now, Winnie often complained about what he called Chucky D's patriotic arrogance. Uh, later in his memoirs, Winnie wrote, De Gaulle felt it was essential to his position before the French people that he should maintain a proud and haughty demeanour towards perfidious Albion, 
although in exile, dependent upon our protection and dwelling in our midst. He had to be rude to the British to prove to French eyes that he was not a British puppet. He certainly carried out this policy with <laughs> perseverance. <laughs> de Gaulle... Did you, did, yeah. Yeah, sorry, what? I was going to say, did you read what the French foreign minister said when trying when someone asked him about why was de Gaulle such a jerk? No, uh, why? I, um, he says, General de Gaulle believes that Frenchmen always try to please the man to whom they are talking. The general thinks they overdo it, and he adopts a different attitude. He makes no <laughs> yeah. effort to please. I think we. I think you mentioned that earlier on in the series, actually. I vaguely remember that. Um, de Gaulle um, uh, explained his relationship with Churchill like this. When I am right, I get angry. Churchill gets angry when he is wrong. We are angry at each other most of the time. <laughs> what a I love that. When oh, I am right, good loser. I get angry. Churchill gets angry when he is wrong. We are angry at each other most of the time. <laughs> ah, I love it. On one occasion, uh, in 1941, Churchill spoke to de Gaulle on the telephone um, de Gaulle said that the French people thought of him as a reincarnation of Joan of Arc, to which Churchill reminded him that the English had to burn the last one <laughs> and might have to burn this one as well, which was the suggestion. Oh my God. Clementine, Churchill once said to de Gaulle, General, you must not hate your friends more than you hate your enemies. Yes. To which de Gaulle famously replied, and this should be our next coffee mug, no nation has friends, only interests. Oh, I like that. That's that, true. Which is pretty much the fucking tagline of every podcast we've ever done, right? That's what we've been trying to say <laughs> and, and for true. years I mean, and years. He's making a very valid point. And, I mean, France was humiliated. They went down without much of a fight. And Stalin, and we'll get into this later, but Stalin hate is also angry at de Gaulle in France because they lost so quickly and so badly. Germany did not lose a ton of men in conquering France, which allowed him to you know, relatively quickly turn around and then go after the Soviet Union. So Stalin's like, you know, thanks a freaking a lot. And now you want to sit at this table? I don't think so. So, Churchill once tried to remove de Gaulle as leader of the French resistance, as did Roosevelt, and I'll talk about that later. But when Churchill tried to convince his war cabinet to help put pressure on the French resistance, the war cabinet warned him that a break with de Gaulle would probably have a disastrous reaction on the whole resistance movement. Um, Winnie, meanwhile, got pretty gruff with de Gaulle, telling him at one point that the war effort would easily continue without him. And then, on the 21st of April, 1943, de Gaulle was scheduled to fly in a bomber to Glasgow to inspect the Free French Navy. Mm -hmm. Or the f-f-f-ships, as they referred to them. On the plane with him were a few other leaders of the Free French, including the Commander-in-Chief of the Free French Navy and William Bonaparte Wise, mm. an Irish soldier who was the great-grandson of Lucien Bonaparte, Napoleon's youngest brother. Wow. 
apropos of nothing. I just thought that was interesting. No, it's cool. Yeah. On as the plane took off, its tail dropped off. Okay, that's bad, right? Well, the tail didn't drop off, but the the tail dropped basically. He couldn't the pilot couldn't control it. Right. And the plane nearly crashed into the embankment on the airfield. It was only through the skill of the pilot that he managed to land the aircraft without crashing. Whew. There was an an inspection and they found that the separator rod in the tail had been sabotaged using acid. Ah. Oh. I think it was Churchill. No kidding. <laughs> no, I mean, personally, he personally was there with a little drop and, and threw yeah. some, put some drops on there. Yeah. Now, MI6 investigated the incidents and, um, no, you know. Couldn't find anything. <laughs> yeah, not surprisingly. No, 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 we don't see anything wrong here. Where did no the acid clues. come from? Oh, it just, 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 just appeared. It's just magic. <laughs> Just magic acid. Yeah, yeah. They have that now. Probably the Germans. <laughs> it appears magic acid. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So de Gaulle, on the other hand, believed that uh, the English were behind it. it was a, there was a plot to have him assassinated, yeah. but he couldn't prove it. But he didn't trust the British. Not surprisingly. Yeah. And, and, and uh, when, the, when the Americans and the British were going into North Africa together, there was another general that they wanted to try to use instead of uh, de Gaulle. His name was his. He was General Henri Girard. And he turned out to be even a bigger asshole than de Gaulle. But he was all about personal power. He said, if, you, if I'm going to be in charge, I want complete power. Give me all the men. Give me all the material. But I'm going to call the shots and I'm going to do everything, which is, of course, completely unrealistic. And so so by comparing him to de Gaulle, de Gaulle looked slightly better to to have in that position. So there were more arrogant Frenchmen out there than de Gaulle, so they pretty much needed to stick with him. Yeah, well, I I, I don't think it went exactly down like that, though I I know that in 1943 at the Casablanca Conference, Frankie forced de Gaulle to cooperate with Giraud, Mm -hmm. but... um, Giraud was eventually shut out by the French people. He, uh, you know, De Gaulle, as much as everyone else hated him, he was considered the undisputed leader of the resistance by the French themselves. Right. Giraud, as you say, was an arrogant prick, but um, yeah, he got shut out by the French, and eventually everyone else just had to deal with Chucky D. But Frankie, for a long time, Roosevelt refused to recognise De Gaulle as the legitimate representative of France. He insisted on negotiating only with the Vichy government. Right. Uh, apparently, he hoped that they could kind of wean Pétain away from the Germans somehow. Um, but, uh, yeah. you know, eventually he, he gave in. I think he, he maintained recognition of the Vichy uh, regime until late 1942. And during that time, basically treated de Gaulle like he was just a pain in the ass. Which he was, yeah. So FDR personally did not like him. Churchill needed him. Churchill worked with him. They both had that that stubborn streak of resistance, but Churchill didn't like him personally. And, of course, Stalin didn't like him personally, But which is going to make all this the more strange when FDR and Churchill are speaking up for France, for de Gaulle, saying they have to be in this mix somehow, and we really want to talk about it with you here now, Stalin. So he wasn't very happy about that, but... He was going to let FDR at least have a say. So I think it's interesting that Churchill 
and Roosevelt got along okay. Roosevelt and Stalin got along okay. Churchill and Stalin got along okay. They respected each other, yeah. Both of them. They had meetings. They, they argued from time to time, but there was always good feelings after they parted. Mm-hmm. But everyone hated Chucky D. <laughs> no consistent. one liked him. Yeah. Everyone hated the Frenchman. Um, <clears throat> now, as I said, Roosevelt tried to ignore the, the resistance movement for a long time. Eventually, he's forced to recognise de Gaulle in late 1944. That's how long it took Damn. before he even right recognised de Gaulle. Yeah. Um, he even recognised the Italian provisional government before he recognised the French provisional government, which uh, outraged everyone. Finally, he's fought, but he manages to exclude de Gaulle from the Yalta conference. <laughs> Even though it's early 1945 now, de Gaulle is the head of the provisional government of France. Yeah. Uh, every, the, the US and the UK believe France should have a role in German occupation, the post-war world, and the United Nations. But they go, yeah, but look, but we're not inviting de Gaulle to this thing. Like, <laughs> you oh fuck my, it can up. you imagine? Can you imagine that fucking dude? If he was here, oh, we'd have no fun. It'd be France yeah. this, France that, De Gaulle this, De Gaulle that. <laughs> Fuck him. We got bigger issues to talk about. He, I personally do believe he would have wrecked the entire conference of Yalta, but doing it uh, by hardly saying any words. But he would have fucked everything up. All goodwill would have been shattered. That's my personal until he, belief. Until he broke out the music, man. Then, then, then it would be fun. okay. I would have wanted to sing along. Now, I, but from the French perspective... You know, as you said, they were pissed at the Americans for not supporting him in uh, World War One or World War Two, mm-hmm. and they're like, "Hey, we fucking gave you the fucking Liberty Statue that you make a big deal about. That was a gift from France to America, and we gave you the fucking Louisiana Purchase for like a dollar, right? Like half of your of country, man. the rights of man, right?" And the rights of man. Thank you very much. Yeah, you know, we, and we supported your fucking revolutionary war with the British. Exactly. We drove ourselves so fucking broke doing that that we had to have our own revolution because everyone couldn't eat. We had no money. No one could eat because we were spending all our money helping you fight the British. Yes, yes, okay, because we wanted to see the British down on their fucking knees. Yes, but, but, still, still. but still, we supported you. You ungrateful cunts did nothing when we had our own wars. He was so angry, he wrote another song that he performed for them at Yalta. Had to be the number one song in France. Yeah, in France, but nowhere else. Yeah, they didn't. They yeah. didn't like that one as much as the Zuba Zuba Zu song. <laughs> but uh, Frankie had finally succumbed to the idea that uh, they had to deal with De Gaulle. Now, just to wrap up, because I know we're over an hour. Um, <clears throat> Big Joe's argument was that France had no right to any part 
of what happened to Germany because he believed that uh, the, the, the Germany was to be run by those who, in his words, those who have stood firmly against Germany and have made the greatest sacrifices in bringing victory. Mm-hmm. Winnie admitted that France had gone under and not been able to do much to help subsequently. But, he says, British public opinion wouldn't understand France being excluded. He wrote, The destiny of great nations are not decided by the temporary state of their technical apparatus. They were just temporarily down in the dumps. They've been a great nation before. They'll be a great nation again. This is just their low point. we got to cut them some slack and bring them back into the fold of great powers. I get that, but this is the new, new. Stalin doesn't have to get it. He doesn't have to care. He is the new power. Fuck the old world. This is the modern times. And this whole theory of... of you know, the temporary state of their technical apparatus, that didn't stop British from, like, waging war against the French countless times right. uh, before, after the revolution, all the Napoleonic years. Uh, so, again, like, convenient uh, form of political rationale on behalf yeah. of Churchill here. Crock of shit, right. I'm calling it. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah. As I've said several times so far, he is just trying to protect the old world order against the revolutionary newcomer, Big Joe. Right. He's trying to maintain the balance of power in Europe, and he needs Germany to be strong coming out of this. He needs France to be strong coming out of this in order to form a bulwark against what he sees as the Soviets wanting to take control. And again, this isn't out of any concern over human rights. He doesn't give you a fuck about... Fuck them. No one, No one gives a fuck about, oh, well, the Soviets are going to invade this country and that country. They're happy. The British are happy to maintain their own colonies. They're, everyone, including the US, are happy for French to have their colonies yeah. as long as they can trade with them. It's not about we fundamentally believe all that nonsense we wrote in the Atlantic Charter or in Woodrow Wilson's <laughs> 14 points coming out of World War One. It's that... Right. Countries that fall into a Soviet trading block will not be accessible to uh, our manufacturers, uh, our businesses, and that's not acceptable. That's the fundamental problem here is making sure that no one gets too much power and can form a trading block. Yeah, because like you said on a couple of shows ago, um, the United States, just like everyone else, had just come out of come out of the Great Depression, and now they're doing a lot better. And their manufacturers, especially with the war winding down, their manufacturers are going to be able to produce more than the American people can consume, can purchase. They're going to need foreign markets. They're going to need as many as they could possibly get. And so it's all about making sure everything is set up, the status quo, so someone a lot of someones can buy the American goods once we get this or uh, war over with. That's what it all comes down to because they didn't want to suffer another recession. You can't blame them, but it's certainly not as noble as uh, as we've been led to believe, especially in high school and junior high. And the American planners well understood uh, all through World War II that if they came out of it um, as they thought they would – they would be the only economic power on the planet. 
And, and that's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. <laughs> You've got to take advantage. I mean, and, and this, is, and this is not about principles or ideas. You've got to take advantage of that while you can because that's such a unique opportunity. It's probably a once-in-a-lifetime kind of thing. You've got to strike while the iron's hot, and the American government or whoever you want to call it, the powers that be, are ready and willing to do that. Yeah. So... Um but before, so they they start talking about the role of France, and um, you know earlier when when Stalin had asked Roosevelt about France at their private meeting, why should we give them any role in Germany? Frankie had said, "Look, honestly, there's no reason to do it except out of kindness." <laughs> Who's he uh, talking but, to? Yeah, but <laughs> on day two, uh, when the discussion of France comes up, Frankie drops a bombshell. On the proceedings, which yeah, what does he tell them, Ray? And uh, what is it, Ray? This is a chance for you to. Oh, I thought we were. I love to do love to do cliffhangers. He goes, "Oh, by the way, um, one of the reasons we should be, bring France up and make them strong and stable as we possibly can." I can't really see American troops staying in Europe, say more than two years. So let's get this bitch going. Because we're going to be leaving soon. And if you need someone to watch Soviet Russia or make sure no other German strongman rises, you better get your shit, your European stuff together, because we're going to be leaving as soon as we possibly can. We're Americans. We're outie. We're going to pull it out faster than a Catholic birth control <laughs> proponent. Oh yeah, they're gonna, the Americans are going to pull the great pull out of America. The great pull out. We're going to pull out and finish on your tits. That's basically <laughs> what. Uh, <laughs> that's how you know. Um, that's how you know America has stopped by. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, the, that's, oh that's, look! Look at my tits. The Americans have been here. What? Uh, it's cold. America's pearl necklace to Germany. <laughs> um, so, I'm tired. <laughs> it's what it's what Trump's going to do to NATO and the UN. It's a pearl necklace. Oh, they get broken another rib. Uh, so when Frankie drops this, Winnie and Joey are both <laughs> shocked. Um, they, you know, Frankie just says, "Look." Congress isn't going to agree with the, yeah. the, just the cost. The cost of leaving troops here, we just we can't do it, man. Yeah. So I'm um, sorry. Got to fend for yourselves. We came, we saw, we pulled out, and we came on your tits. Yeah, um, even though we have 92% of the, of the world's gold, we can't afford to stick around for too many years. So thanks <laughs> yeah, for coming. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what the Latin version is. We came, we saw, we pulled out and came on your tits. I'm sure somebody has <laughs> their Latin better. Somebody <laughs> tell me what that is in Latin. Ask Jamie Benny, Redfern. Veni, vidi, voi! <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. <laughs> Jamie Redford, yeah. Um, oh. Or Father Bob, my Catholic priest, he knows his Latin. I'm sure he'll I'll have know. To tweet him. I'll tweet him, yeah. yeah. Now, uh, the, straight after this uh, bombshell, Stalin basically agrees to create a separate occupation zone for France. Yeah. He's like, well, that changes everything. <laughs> um, but, he says, but you have to take it out of your slice of the cake. Right. You ain't touching my shit. I worked yeah. for this. I earned this. You two split yeah. it up. Yeah. 
My name's Paul, and this is Between Y'all. <laughs> now, Germany was too big to be handled by any one country, even one as large as the USSR. And uh, so they basically get agreement here that France can have a role in the occupation of Germany, but Joey puts his foot down on not allowing them to have a position on the Allied Control Commission which right. is actually going to be the entity that controls German affairs. Mm-hmm. Um, Winnie pushes for it, but, again, because Winnie wants France to, to be in his debt and to, and to be a power player, but again, Frankie sides with Joey. Yep. Another victory, for, another victory for Stalin. FDR is looking yeah. good. He is now the kingmaker because he gets to decide all the ties. That's a pretty good position to be in. Yeah. And so that's the end of the debate. They say they will defer the details to the foreign ministers for discussion. But that's how we wrap up the French component of day two. Day two's not over yet. We still have to talk about reparations. Oh, my God. But that's the French side of it. They agree that France can have a role in the occupation, but not a role on the Allied Control Commission. And again, Roosevelt has sided with Stalin on that issue and Churchill is furious, but there isn't anything he can do about it. And and if I just say as an American, I I think uh, Roosevelt was right because really, and you've said this before in previous shows, Stalin's got all the cards. His troops are there just near Berlin. They're the ones who have beat the shit out of the Germans. And he's already captured a whole bunch of territory. They know he's not going to give it up. So really, the Americans and the British don't have a way to intimidate or to come back at Stalin. So FDR is going to give in to him as much as he has to, but he's going to try and get something out of it by building up a very, you know, a a professional relationship with the premier. And hopefully when the time comes, he's going to be able to use that relationship to get something that he wants, because there is something he desperately wants that we haven't gotten to yet in the conference. And that will be the topic for uh, episode number 33. But before we go, I want to do another review. This review is uh, from Switzerland. Don't know why I said it like that. I'll just say Switzerland. From Switzerland, um, Divicus. Subject line, let's make podcasting great again. We should get those hats made up. <laughs> Post haste. Mach schnell. Make podcasting great again. He or she writes, Great podcast. While jogging through the snowy forests of Switzerland and listening to this wonderful podcast, I sometimes break out in loud laughter, which often results in other people looking strangely at me. Good. They're like, Hey, why are you jogging through snow? That's ridiculous. Go to a gym. <laughs> B... Why are you laughing weirdly? If you want to learn not only about the Cold War, but also about how people with power and money influence our daily lives, this is the podcast you need to listen to. In addition, it is great entertainment. Can't wait for the 2018 Cold War trip to Europe. And in the meantime, as advised, I'm savoring every spare dollar or rather Swissy I can spare. Really? That's what they call their currency? Swissy? Swissy. Nice. Swissy. Come to Australia this year. I thought Swissy. No, we don't want people to come to Australia. No, no, you, no, no one's invited us in to Europe. Australia. Meet us in Europe. Yeah, 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 go to Europe. No one's invited no. to Australia, <laughs> except the Aussies. <laughs> okay. No, no, we don't. <laughs> I'm not prepared to handle that. 
No, come to Europe uh, next year. We've got 2018, save your cookies. Uh, yeah. Or Swissies. It's going to be a bit... Or Swissies. I thought a Swissie was a sex uh, position, but that's another story. It is, remember? Um, anyway. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so that's uh, part two of day two, the De Gaulle bio, Chucky D. We're going to go out with some more uh, Chucky D. Be back next time. Asia. Oh, good. Yeah.